0: Welcome everyone to this Explore History Podcast on popular literature known as the Chapbook. In the 17th and 18th centuries, shops or stores were few in number, especially in the smaller towns and villages, and so many people relied on itinerant traders known as chapmen. These people would move from place to place, selling their wares as they went. They might sell all sorts of things that people might need, thimbles and needles, buttons and cutlery, and even a good story. It is from these chapmen that we get the name of the most prominent form of popular literature, apart from scripture, chapbooks. Chapbooks formed almost the whole of the common people's secular reading material were an important part of the oral tradition as they could be read aloud to larger groups of people who were illiterate. They not only entertained but provided useful information were an important part of folk culture. The chapbook dominated from the late 17th to the early decades of the 19th century, although some were still being produced as late as the late 19th century. They were small, made of poor quality paper, usually featured a rough woodcut on the front cover. They would have stories, all kinds of different stories, folk tales, ghost stories, songs, stories of ruthless murderers, hurricanes and earthquakes, other natural phenomena, all sorts of things that would be of interest to the common folk. In Scotland, the chapbook trade took off in the mid-18th century with the works of Dougal Graham, considered one of the greatest chapmen. As John Strong noted in 1856, he who desires to acquire a thorough knowledge of low Scottish life, vulgar manners, national characteristics, and popular jokes, must devote his days and his nights to the study of all the productions of Dougal's fertile brain. His unwearied application to the culture of vulgar literature, to refined taste, Dougal had no pretensions. His indelicacy is notorious. His coarseness and abomination, they are characteristic of the class." Graham's works dominated until late into the 18th century, when the works of Robbie Burns gained in popularity. At the turn of the 19th century, chapbooks were still the dominant, most widespread form of reading material amongst the adult poor. However, they were losing their place as new forms of literature emerged. In the 1830s, the taxes on paper were reduced making books and newspapers more affordable. You also had the introduction of illustrated works like the Penny Magazine and the London Illustrated News. And Further, the chapbooks were increasingly viewed as being too vulgar, immoral, and an obstacle to the reform of the working class. Tastes were changing. The days of the chapbook were numbered. By the 1830s, it was becoming no longer proper for a person of social standing to be reading popular literature. With this, we see an increased opposition to the chapbook, just as there was opposition to other forms of popular culture, such as bare knuckle boxing and bear baiting, cockfighting, and football. Some, like football, were cleaned up, given rules, and a pitch to play on. They were brought under control. For the chapbook and other forms of popular literature, it was simply a case of being replaced or fading away. A variety of religious groups, social and educational reformers, and publishers worked vigorously at breaking the hold that popular literature had on the majority of the population. What we are left with are some rare and unusual sources that all, are all but forgotten, that allow us a window into the popular culture of the period, a glimpse into a small aspect of the lives of the common people, what they like to read, listen to, or sing, the stories they related to and found of interest, the early history of publishing, the spread of the printed word and how this came into conflict with those often middle class individuals and organizations that were bent on reforming the lower class into their own refined and acceptable image. So, I want to continue on now with a reading. And over the next few podcasts, I will be looking at some different chapbooks to give some examples. This one is called The Ghost of My Uncle. And to it is added a short story called The Outwitted Tax Gatherer. It's produced in Glasgow and it has no date. So here is the ghost of my uncle. I arose early in the morning, after taking a good breakfast, set out from home. A quantity of rain had fallen in the night. It was, however, fair when I commenced my expedition, and I wished it so to remain. The morning was still and beautiful. It was at the early hour of four. I could not yet distinguish the sun, though I was sensible he had left his ocean bed and the beautiful streaks of colouring in the eastern sky. To express a softness, mildness, and calmness of the scenery at that hour, I cannot find adequate words. Those only can conceive it who have witnessed the scene. I had not proceeded more than two miles before a few drops alarmed me with apprehension of a soaking shower from a heavy black cloud that was slowly sailing over my head, and my fears were soon realized by a very thick descent that followed on which I betook myself with all speed to a thatched cottage that I saw at some distance for shelter. Many years had elapsed since I had wandered about in this spot uh, in careless infancy, and the pretty secluded cot to which I was advancing had once been my home. I looked around on the hills and dales, and could easily recognize them as my old acquaintances. Ha! said I, ye change not your appearance, ye grow not old in the course of time. The feebleness of age cometh, not upon you, ye still smile in the brightness of summer, and frown in the lowering winter. For ages ye have reared your towering crests, and given food to the flocks and the herds that have checkered your dark surface, ye have given a direction to the murmuring brook that proceeds from you till it seeks, far distant, the mighty ocean, while generation after generation hath passed away, ye have preserved unvaried the features ye possessed in ages gone. Even now, as in years past, my eyes behold the still sunshine sleeping upon your gentle sloping declivities, interrupted only when the light cloud of spring for a moment casts over them its passing shadow. My cogitations were suddenly interrupted by the gate at the end of the pasture, which I opened. In another moment, I was in the porch of the cottage. I lifted the latch and went in. The house appeared just the same as I had left it ten years before. The furniture was the same, and each piece occupied the same position. The old clock stood ticking in the corner, as it had done for fourscore years. The oaken settle remained behind the door, my uncle's antique two-armed chair by the fireside. But I saw no living creature in the house besides the cat on the hearthstone. I listened a while, but could hear nothing. At this I rather wondered. As of yore, the house was seldom, scarcely ever totally deserted. I then went forward into the, into the spence or a country parlor where I found several neighbor cousins and the servants all standing in deep silence around the bed of my dying uncle. On entering, all eyes turned upon me. I was a stranger to most of them. There were, however, one or two who remembered me. I advanced to the bedside, and the countenance of my uncle for a moment brightened up at my approach, but soon subsided again into a cold, tranquil indifference. It was plain that death was rapidly approaching, He had been speechless several hours. Consequently, we could hold no conversation. He, however, put out his hand, which I grasped with an affection, redoubled by the prospect of soon losing him forever. In my younger days, I had lived with him, and he, having no children of his own, was then remarkably fond of me. Subsequently, that affection was strengthened between us, and although circumstances had cast my lot in another country, yet we had kept up a friendly and affectionate intercourse time previous to his indisposition, I had again removed to within thirty miles of his residence, which was the place from whence I set out on this sorrowful visit. My uncle was a man of sound judgment, keen observation, and cheerful social disposition. Joined to a thorough knowledge of mankind, he possessed a good portion of eccentricity and humour. He loved a cheerful glass. He was kind to his servants and dependents. Though rather of a frugal and saving disposition, he was charitable to his poor neighbors. In his friendships he was rather capricious, but firm in his attachment to the Kirk and government of his country. He is apt to be a little passionate and hasty in his temper, but his resentment was seldom of long duration. He was well beloved by those among whom he dwelt, and might be pronounced a good neighbor and an excellent subject. By a long course of industry in his profession, he had amassed a pretty good property, the knowledge of which had drawn around him Um, a host of needy relations. By a long course of industry in his profession, he had amassed a pretty good property, and the knowledge of which had drawn him a host of needy relations, who besieged him with flattery and professions But those attentions were chiefly drawn forth by their hopes of inheriting the old man's property. How he had willed it was not known! He was a man of prudence, and seldom blabbed out his private affairs. On my arrival, I found all the friends about him remarkably attentive and duteous in their behavior, though it was evident that a good deal of the affection was assumed. Shortly after, he fell into a kind of doze, and all left the room, save an attendant or two. Peggy, the servant who had lived with my uncle fourteen years, now insisted on my taking some refreshment. But I was too much agitated to feel anything like pleasure in my repast, and what I ate was more to please the faithful old domestic than from any inclination of my own. When my slight meal was over, I got up and went to the window in a serious and reflecting mood. The afternoon was far advanced, and the scenery without was wrapped in tranquillity. I was soon summoned from my station to the parlor. My uncle had somehow revived, his speech had returned. He told us death was making rapid advances, and that we might soon expect the moment of his dissolution. He informed us where we should find his will, and gave us some excellent advice on our future conduct. Some things he requested us to perform, which I thought were a little odd. He wished us to read his will in the room where he was, immediately after he had expired. He desired that he might not be laid out, as is commonly called, until at least twelve hours after his departure, that his large two-armed oaken chair might be placed in all order and solemnity, at the head of the table, every meal, and that it should remain unoccupied till after his funeral." He also wished to be interred in a very deep grave. All these requests we promised faithfully to observe, when, after taking an affectionate farewell to each, he quietly resigned himself to his pillow. His breathing became more and more faint, till at last we could perceive it no more. During these transactions, my mind was in a state I cannot well describe. My thoughts were all confusion. At the same time, I struggled to be calm and composed. Poignant as were my feelings, I gazed on my dying relative with a sort of empathy and grief. At the moment when nature was yielding up the contest, I could not shed a tear. In a short time, all quitted the apartment, and I was left alone. The branches of the huge elm trees, with their thickening foliage partially screening the window, made it under such circumstances awfully gloomy and tranquil. I took several turns about the room. With a soft step, I approached the bed, gazed a moment, turned away and then going up to the window, strove to divert my thoughts by looking at the surrounding landscape. Twilight was descending. The sober hues of evening gradually enveloped the lofty hills. No sound struck my ear except the faint and low murmurs of the brook, which bawled down the valley at the bottom of the flinty no. The shout, softened by distance by the peasant committing his herds to the pasture, and now and then the solitary barking of a shepherd's dog among the echoing dales, attendant on his master looking out his charge for the night. I had not stood at the casement many minutes, when my cousins, all talking in a rude, noisy, and indecorous manner, came into the room with the will, which it seems they had departed in such the moment the testator had expired. I was a good deal shocked at the frivolity they manifested, and could not help reproving them, though in a mild and gentle manner, for the little respect they paid to the deceased. Why ye ken, said one, he told us to read the will amidst as soon as he died, I cried another, and sighing conformity with his command, we went straight up the stairs and rummaged o'er his and o'er his old kist till we found it. Mind your own concerns, good man, and we'll mind ours," rejoined the third, rather gruffly, so that my well-meant admonitions had no better effect than to cause me to be more disliked by the party. For I could perceive before this that they looked on me in the light of an unwelcome intruder. The will was now read, to which all paid the greatest attention. A mute anxiety and deep interest sat on every countenance. Their aspects was, however, instantly changed into those of intense disappointment and vexation on hearing that my uncle had made a stranger, whom none of us knew, the heir of all his property, real and personal. For my part, this circumstance did not affect me in the least. I had not had any expectation of inheriting the smallest portion, therefore could not feel disappointed. But with the others it was different. They clung to him like so many leeches, or like the ivy to the old ruin, and with about as much affection as the two before-mentioned things have for the objects to which they so closely adhere. A most appalling and disgusting scene now took place among the disappointed legacy hunters. They abused the old man in the most shocking terms. They taxed him with injustice and villainy, and even proceeded to call down imprecations upon his lifeless corpse. I shuddered at the conduct of these unprincipled villains. I trembled at the impiety of men who could, at a time the most solemn and impressive to a human being, act in a manner sufficient to call down upon them immediate and divine vengeance. I was chilled with horror. I almost expected every moment to see the lifeless corpse of my uncle start from the bed on which it lay, to take vengeance on the audacious wretches. Once, indeed, I actually thought I saw his lips quiver with rage. His eyebrows knit together and all the muscles of his countenance contract into a dreadful frown. I shuddered at the sight and withdrew my gaze. At length they went into the kitchen, and I was once more left alone in the chamber of death. I went to the bedside, and the scene I had just witnessed operated so forcibly on my feelings that I burst into tears and uttered aloud my lamentations over my lifeless relative. When this ebullition had somewhat subsided, I began to reflect a little where I was, and a sort of timidity came creeping over me. There is an undefinable apprehension which we feel while we are in company with the dead. We imagine, in spite of the efforts of reason, that the departed spirit is hovering near its former tenement. It being now quite dark, and having these feelings in a strong degree, it is no wonder that I rather preferred the company of the wretches in the kitchen than to remain long where I was. I accordingly proceeded thither, Where I found them carousing round a large table in which were placed the fragments of the dinner and plenty of liquor. I reminded them of our promise to place my uncle's old two armed chair at the head of the table as he had requested, which they had neglected to do, and which they now strenuously opposed my doing. I was, however, resolutely determined to have it done, and at length succeeded. I then retired to the fireside where I sat, without taking any part in the conversation or in anything that passed during the whole evening. I shall pass over the several succeeding hours, the whole of which they sat drinking, till they were all in a greater or less degree intoxicated, and generally brawling, wrangling, and swearing, in a loud and boisterous manner. The night became stormy as it advanced. The wind arose, and at intervals moaned, sighed, and whistled shrilly without, roared in the wide chimney, as it fiercely bent the trees in which the house was embosomed, made a sound similar to the dashing of the waves on the shore of the ocean. The rain fell in torrents, and the large drops pattered against the windows with a ceaseless and melancholy cadence. It was now getting nigh the witching time of night, and I saw no signs of the revelers quitting the table. On the contrary, they grew more loud and boisterous, in obedience to their imperious commands, yet evidently with the greatest reluctance, Peggy had kept replenishing the exhausted vessels with more liquor, and their demands increased in proportion to the reluctance with which they were satisfied. At length, however, On receiving an intimation from me that I would interpose, she absolutely refused to draw any more liquor for them, telling them they had plenty, that it was time to retire to bed. The scene that now ensued was such as is is impossible for me to describe. Maddened and inflamed with rage at being thus refused, the wretches began to throw the furniture up and down the house, break the glasses and jugs, and to abuse the servant from whom they attempted to wrestle the key of the cellar, yelling out at the same time the most horrid oaths and imprecations. The table was shortly overturned, and the lights put out in the candle. The table was shortly overset, and the lights put out in the scuffle, and a few moments we should, in all probability, have had bloodshed, as I felt myself roused to a pitch of fury was it advancing, with the large heavy-headed fire-poker to the assistance of the servant, who was loudly shrieking for help. Just then the old clock struck twelve rapid strokes, and the bell had not ceased to vibrate when we heard three heavy knocks, as if given by a mallet upon the wall, which separated the kitchen from the parlour where my uncle lay. There appeared to be something supernatural in this. The whole house seemed to shake to its very foundation. A deep silence ensued. I stood still. The wretches instantly became sober. We all gazed earnestly and wildly at the place from whence the noise proceeded. Scarce had we recovered from the shock when we were again thunderstruck by the noise in the parlor. It was like any sound that i had ever heard before. It seemed as if all the furniture in the room was violently crashed together, mingled with the noise of firearms, shrieks, and exclamations burst from all. The windows shook and every door of the habitation gave a momentary jar. I trembled with awe. I felt every hair of my head bristling upwards. My knees smote against each other. A deathly paleness sought in every countenance, and all eyes were fixed in intense gaze on the door. At the upper part of the kitchen, which led to the staircase, buttery, and parlor. When to complete the horror of the scene, the door burst wide open, dashed against the wall, and in glided at a slow pace came a dreadful apparition. Its countenance was that of death seemed to have been long the inhabitant of that dark and narrow house. The grave, the worms had reveled upon its eyes and left nothing but the orbless sockets. The rest of the skeleton was enveloped in a long and white sheet. The horrid specter advanced into the middle of the room. I voluntarily shrunk back. The heavy weapon dropped from my hand and rang loudly on the stone floor. Overcome with terror, I sank into a chair. Cold sweat broke from my forehead, and I well-nigh fainted on its first appearance. The others had tumbled one over the other in the greatest horror and confusion, and now lay as if dead in all directions. The spectre gazed wildly round for a moment, at the clock, at the fire, and then turned its eyeless sockets upon each individual, motioning at the same time with its long arm and pointing to the outer door, seemingly directing for an outlet for an escape and wishing for their exit. They were not long in obeying this intimation, but but severally crawled away on their hands and knees, with all the speed they could possibly make, none of them daring to stand upright. The spectre, all the while, standing in the middle of the floor, eyeing, or rather appearing to eye them, through the void sockets where eyes had once glistened, as they retreated one by one in the greatest fear and trepidation. When Peggy and I offered to decamp along with the rest, the spectre motioned to us to remain where we were, and we durst not for our lives disobey. When the last of the crew were making his exit, and crawled nearly to the door, the spectre, which had hitherto stood motionless, except waving its arm, slowly turning its eyeless countenance on the wretches as they crept successively out the door, bounded with the rapidity of lightning after the terrified wretch, but swift as the flight of spirits are, in this case, that of the mortal was swifter. The fellow gave a thrilling scream, made a convulsive spring. His heel struck violently against the lintel of the door. To his his course and the vanished, and he vanished from my sight, and the spectre after him. Good, defend us! Said Peggy. For my part, ill as I was frightened, I could scarce forbear laughing outright at the at the last incident, so comic and farcical. Half a minute had not had not elapsed when I heard a step, and in another instant. I still kept my eyes on the door. In came the very form of my uncle, muttering, villains, rascals, hypocrites. He fastened the door after him, shut out his nephews and the specter, and then came towards the fire. At this I was more amazed than ever. He, however, gave me to understand that he was alive and well, that all I had seen transacted in the afternoon and evening was nothing but a stratagem he had made use of to try the sincerity of his relations, and if he found them, as he conjectured, false in their professions, to get rid of them. The scheme answered nobly, and, it must be confessed, the stratagem was well planned and exceedingly well executed. My uncle concluded his relation with assuring me that, accepting a good legacy for his faithful servant Peggy, I should inherit all that he possessed. As some little acknowledgement for the fright he'd caused me and for the wretches he'd expelled from his house in so singular a manner, they should never more cross the threshold of his door. We all three now sat down to a little supper, of which my uncle stood in great need after taking a cheerful glass, retired to bed. Notwithstanding the fatigue of my journey and sitting up so late, my sleep was far from being sound and refreshing. I was disturbed with fearful dreams the whole night. At length the cocks began to crow, the clouds of the eastern sky to break asunder and the morning to dawn. When it was tolerably light, I started up, resolved on a stroll over the meadows. Before going out, however, I went into the parlor where I found everything in the utmost confusion. Chairs, tables, walking sticks, and logs of wood lay all over the floor. Everything upset or in a wrong position. I then proceeded to the outer door, which I opened, but started back in horror on perceiving a human skull lying on a sheet at my right hand, just without the door. Recovering from my fright, I gathered it up could not restrain my laughter, when I discovered it be nothing more than a mask, representing a death's head. It seems while we were all wrangling the night before, my uncle had stepped out of bed, dressed himself, piled all the furniture, logs of wood and timber he could get in the apartment, in a heap, crowning the pyramid with a dozen or more walking sticks, which had lain time out of, t- of mind on the top of an old cupboard, then gone upstairs and put on the horrid mask, brought down a pistol, enveloped himself from his feet to his chin in a clean white sheet after alarming us just as the clock struck the awful hour of 12 by striking three heavy blows against the wall with a large log by striking three heavy blows against the wall with a huge log of wood he contrived to tumble down the whole mass of furniture fired his pistol at the same moment and then burst in upon us in the manner described I now went out. As I was crossing the yard, I discovered several drops of blood on a stone, which I could now, which I could no way account for, but by supposing some of my good cousins had received in their retreat a fall. A little farther, I discovered a pair of shoes, a receptacle for the filth of the buyer, and in another part of the yard, were evident marks of some having had therein a severe struggle. Indeed, the adventures of the flying indeed the adventures of flying heroes had been various and woeful. One of them. He at whom the spectre had made such a sudden bound, as I afterwards ascertained, actually ran seven miles without stopping, with his shrieks supposing the grim monster close at his heels almost raised the whole country. I now proceeded onwards over the fields, listening to the warbling lark springing blithely up to greet the purpling east. The air was fresh and pure. In the beauties of nature, I a while forgot the events of the preceding evening. With hasty steps, I roved over the faintly recollected scenes where I had in childhood spent some of my happiest hours. Until, weary with my rambles, I returned to breakfast. So that concludes the story, The Ghost of My Uncle, which is the main story in the chapbook. There's one more story as well, a short story, which I will now read, which um, is a very nice humorous tale called The Outwitting a Tax Gatherer. Some writers have stated the number of islands in Strangford Lock to be upwards of 200, but it has been ascertained that there are not more than 54. Some are inhabited. On others, cattle of various kinds are kept by the proprietors of the grounds on the opposite shore. Upon one of them, there is a very extensive rabbit warren. The individual who resides on this island had for many years derived a very considerable income from the sale of the rabbit skins, although he had erected a very good house he never once dreamed of paying anything in the shape of excise or taxes. At length, however, a tax-gatherer gra- who had paid a visit to the houses on the neighbouring shore beheld with anxious gaze the goodly edifice which presented itself upon the island, determined upon visiting it in the name of his majesty. The proprietor of the place, having been in the habit of receiving visits from persons who came in pr- to purchase his skins, and supposing the taxman to be one of them, send off a boat to fetch him to the island. On reaching the place, the man of taxes began to make various inquiries as to the time the house had been erected, the number of windows, hearths, etc. it contained, and having gained the desired information, he immediately demanded on behalf of his majesty a considerable sum as the amount of taxes and arrears due upon the place. In vain the poor man protested against the proceeding. As an imposition, in vain he contended, that the demand, never having been made before, he had no right to pay tax, he had no right to pay it then. The stranger was inexorable, and nothing would satisfy him, but payment of the money down, or, in default thereof, he threatened to return direct with a party of the army, and lead, drive, and carry away all he could find upon the island. At length, fearing such a catastrophe and finding every effort to soften the hard heart of the exciseman completely fruitless, the poor man paid down the amount demanded and got it regular acknowledgment for the same, and got a regular acknowledgment for the same and The officer, having put the money in his pocket, haughtily desired that he might be put ashore. No, no, said the old man, although his majesty may compel me to pay taxes, he, he cannot can- compel me to keep a boat to row you and the likes of you back and forward. After many threats and entreaties, the islander at last consented, as he had brought his visitor over to give him a bit of a row back again, and both getting into the boat. Along with a young lad, son to the proprietor, they pulled for some time in the direction of shore. When about midway, however, the islander, quietly laying down his oar, informed the officer that although he had promised to give him a bit of a row, he had never any intention of taking him the entire way, that he must now do the best he could as he was himself obliged to return to the island, so that they would land him on Fadilug, a large rock which was visible at low water, but was many feet beneath the surface at full tide, from which if he shouted loud enough, perhaps some of his friends on the shore might hear him, and might send a boat to convey him the remainder of the distance. On the other protesting against such conduct, and insisting that they should continue their labor, take him ashore, the old man pulling his, his oar into the boat, desiring his son to do the same, Very dryly observed that if the gentleman did not wish to quit the boat, they would not insist upon his doing so, so they could swim like two water dogs and thus easily regain the island. But if he chose to pay him for it, he would willingly land him at any place he wished. Finding himself outwitted by the islanders, the officer declared it the more advisable way to accede to the terms proposed, when to his astonishment he found that the demand was nothing less than the entire amount he had received for the taxes, together with a receipt for those of the following year, and a special engagement that he would never again return to that island to demand taxes on on excise. Hard as the terms were, he was at length compelled to accede to them, rather than take a tide which, at the time, was running at the rate of nine miles an hour. The alternative of being left to drift out to sea in an open boat was scarcely a hope of relief from any quarter. It is scarcely necessary to observe having paid back the money and giving the required receipt, the crestfallen taxman was put safely ashore, never again visited the island or trusted himself in company with so tricky a customer as the old dealer in rabbit skins. The final story in the chapbook is called Scarlet Discovered. A Highlander entered a haberdasher's shop in Perth and asked for a piece of scarlet cloth to make him a waistcoat. The rustic manner of the gale set some young women who were at the counter a-giggling, and the shopman, willing to afford them sport, began to play off his small wit upon the stranger. So, good man, you want a piece of scarlet. Would you know scarlet if you saw it? I think I would, replied the mountaineer. The shopman threw down a piece of blue cloth. Is that scarlet? Ho no, no, that no be, that no be it. A piece of green cloth was produced. The same question was repeated and received a similar answer to the great amusement of the creerst and his female friends, who were at no pains to conceal their mirth. The Highlander took revenge in his own way. He put his nose to the cloth, and affected to judge of the colour by the smell. The shopman at his request did the same, but the instant he bent his nose towards the counter, the Highlander seized him by the ears, made his nasal protuberance come in such violent contact with the boards that the blood sprouting from it. Tat, said the Highlander, is to color a scarlet. Tell you new lad. And he walked away. So that concludes the podcast on chapbooks. On the ghost of my uncle. Um, we'll have more chapbooks coming up soon. Uh, so other podcasts to listen to. In the meantime you can visit our website. At explorehistory.co.uk You can follow us on Instagram. Uh, Twitter or Facebook. Uh, sign up to our newsletter. Um, and uh, Which Uh, will be published monthly.